You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole and I am just so excited to be here as we are coming at you from one of the opulent towers at Coruscant. What could go wrong with all this opulence and with me uh, this week to help me talk about something very special that has just released on Disney Plus in the last few weeks. A very, very special series called Tales of the Jedi and unfortunately... Christy has been detained by an Inquisitor, and therefore I had to call in very quickly the one and the only Jedi Master, John Mills. Oh, trust me, everybody's going to miss Christy by the end of this episode with me coming in here trying to fill those shoes. So, sorry, Christy, I'll try not to uh, damage things too badly while you're away. <laughs> well, I, I did just say that this is a very opulent tower here in Coruscant, so please, let's not damage anything, John. Oh, please. I'm putting it on your credit card. It's no problem. Oh, oops, mm. there we go. More priceless well, sculptures going. It, uh, you know, it's it's good that I have that unlimited uh, funds from the banking clan. Uh, so, you know, oh. I, I'm sure it's fine. Those slinky munes. Well, we are very excited to be getting to this. But uh, before we do that, just want to say thank you to everybody who's listening as we're over 400 episodes now here with the show appreciate everybody continuing to subscribe and to uh, follow us all over social media say on twitter at the 602 club or on instagram at the 602 club tfm we would love it if you would review the show on a place like apple Podcasts or spotify help more people find the show if you like it too please share us uh, the one of the best ways for podcasts to grow is through word of mouth. Uh, and of course, that even happens over social media. You can find us on Facebook with the entire network at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And uh, we've got the entire website, trek.fm, where you can see all of the shows that we're doing. If you would like to talk to listeners from all over the network in our special listeners-only discussion group, you can find that housed on Facebook. It's called the Babel Conference. And then last but not least, we would really appreciate it if you would go over to Patreon dot com slash trek fm and become part of our team it is a lot of money uh, to put this together a lot of credits uh and we can't do this without you so please go over to patreon.com slash trek fm and be part of our team we're actually below the level we need to be at every month to make sure all of these shows keep coming to you so again go to patreon.com slash trek fm and see how you can be part of the team so john one of the things that's really interesting about Tales of the Jedi is that they are six different shorts, and they are 15 minutes or so in length. I think the longest maybe is 17 minutes. Uh, and it specifically is focused on two journeys uh, and, and two different Jedi, Dooku and Ahsoka. And so, you know, one of the questions that I thought would be really interesting to discuss before we even kind of dive into anything else here was, you know, these are all written by Dave Filoni. And um, so 
Why do you think that Dave wanted to focus on these two Jedi's journeys specifically? Well, I mean, I, I can only conjecture, but putting myself in the mindset that I saw uh, after watching all six is the idea that these two journeys specifically bracket the hero's journey of Anakin and the galaxy at large. Uh, Dooku precedes Anakin and points in the direction he's going to go, and Ahsoka gives an indication of the fact that the Force has a continual pathway toward light that is running at the same time. It, I think that the the juxtaposition of the two stories speaks very much to the fact that there's always this light and dark side balance and while our personal decisions will decide things one way or the other, there's always uh, something else at play that isn't directly in our control. I mean, that's that's how I read it. How did it come to you? Well, you know, I, it was one of those things where it felt like that this was an interesting juxtaposition between two different Jedi who left the Order mm -hmm. and you know, giving us the opportunity to kind of explore the reasons and in some ways uh, kind of, again, really just juxtapose these two characters and and who they are from start to finish and, you know, what it is that makes them, you know, want to leave the Order, how they end up doing that, and, uh, of course, you know, what, what the end game is for both of them, you know. With Dooku, we definitely know his endgame because we see him die in episode three. And with Ahsoka, you know, her choices lead her to still be alive. And we have a show coming out uh, live action wise with her uh, next year, most likely. And so, you know, it, it's it just makes me really interested because, you know, we do we don't really see, you know, Jedi leave the order very often. And of course, you know, we only know of 20 uh, that had before, and we honestly don't know many of their names, but we do know, of course, that Dooku is one, and then, of course, Ahsoka becomes another, and so I just, I really love that, because the reasons that they choose to leave are very similar in some ways, mm -hmm. but also wildly divergent on how they actually do leave, and, and what route they end up going and, and kind of whether or not that frustration with the corruption that they see leads them down a dark path or whether they're able to find a way to still navigate towards the light, just, you know, not as a Jedi. I think that there's uh, completely valid. I, I completely plug into what you're saying there. Absolutely. I think that's 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 a great take. Um, on that. I think that what is interesting is that Dooku is a character that for many years I have felt needed more exploration beyond even just the Clone yeah, Wars. I agree. And so I was incredibly heartened to see two things in his journey and they're, they're very specific and to speak to your juxtaposition point uh, you know, I'll go forward to Ahsoka after that. But with Dooku, we see he's straying through his entire... He's struggling with it through his his adult life. And it is Qui -Gon, the loss of Qui-Gon that completely unmoors him. He's already started doing bad things. Right, right. When, when, before Qui-Gon has died. But he's doing justifiably bad things. He's erasing Kamino. He believes the war is coming. 
you see very much implied in everything that he's not necessarily doing what he sees as evil evil he's ends justify the means evil necessary evil as bane might call it and it's qui-gon's death that completely unmoors it and that's the point of no return for him whereas for ahsoka it's the presence of anakin who's going to be the most storied fallen jedi you know that, that we've seen up to this point it's his presence that enables her that he serves in essence a qui-gon role for right. her right in what he is able to pass on and what she's able to hold on to so i think that the juxtaposition is interesting because they both leave for similar reasons but ahsoka is motivated by a definitely a much more altruistic mindset whereas dooku is a much more desperation mindset i would say he sees this even plays into what he says in attack of the clones that you know if qui-gon had known the depth of the corruption he'd have joined me like he's still entertaining that thought that qui-gon would have made uh that specific difference for him and I mean, I'm just thrilled, in all honesty, to have seen this piece of Dooku's journey because I think it's a a critical piece of understanding everything that went wrong and how an idealist can fall apart. And and additionally, just what a master manipulator Sidious was. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that uh, it just... In the idea of juxtaposition... I think that's the thing is that um, it it does, I think, show how idealism can actually lead you to do these type of things. Um, and whereas that's not who Ahsoka is at all. In fact, I would say Ahsoka is more of a realist, mm-hmm. you know, and so and, and I, I love that you pulled that out because I think that really does show us the difference between these two characters. And part of that, I think, is that, you know, one of the things we've talked about many times is, you know, uh, you see that Ahsoka has, you know, not only Anakin, but she has Obi-Wan. And those two combined together, I think, create this Jedi um, that is, you know, driven and passionate and yet very down to earth and realistic about what she sees. You know, um, I think more than uh, Anakin she definitely has a little bit more of that Obi-Wan ability to kind of see the corruption, you know, see where things aren't quite right. Uh, And, of course, even, you know, before Obi-Wan does with the Order, right? And so, and, and I don't think she ever really truly has, you know, Anakin's, like, love of politicians either, you know? Uh, They have to win her over, you know? We see that as well in the storylines we get in the Clone Wars where, you know, she's more wary of politicians than than somebody like Anakin who has a politician as a best friend and father figure. And so, you know, and again, I think through all of this, what we're creating with these two characters is, is these different templates of, you know, people who could be predisposed to choose a different path, like a darker path, because of the experiences they have, because of the rejection they see, because of the corruption that they see, um, because even of the way that they're treated by the order itself, right? And yet, 
you know, you get little bits and pieces here, especially, you know, with Dooku about just there's something in him that, wow, and I think you rightly pointed out, it's that idealism that allows him to 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 be foiled and fooled by the Dark Lord of the Sith, whereas, you know, Ahsoka, is this, that's not something that's ever would have, I think, really tempted her in that way. Well, I think there's also a very interesting thing that came to mind when I watched it, which is the Mortis arc. You can see very clearly Anakin should have stepped into the role of the father, gets corrupt, you know, but he's corruptible and, you know, goes the path of the son, those sorts of things. And Ahsoka, of course, becomes Ahsoka the White. She becomes the sister. There's almost looking at these two arcs in this Tales of the Jedi series gives me the impression that even though he's the older, obviously, that Dooku is the son, mm. Anakin is the yeah, father, and Ahsoka is the sister. Mm. So we see our sort of triumvirate here. Or possibly we could we should really say Sidious is the son because he's the corrupter. And so there's mm-hmm. there's a very interesting yeah. but you know, I I'll stick with Dooku just because it's his story that we're seeing here. But it is interesting how things keep moving in those threes with these stories. And so we know that even though he's not the central figure in these stories, Anakin is very much at the core of it mm-hmm. around which these stories revolve because of the machinations that Sidious has in place leading up to him. And Dooku is a conduit to that. And then Ahsoka being the forces way of counterbalancing Anakin's disruption of goodness in the galaxy. Yeah, no, I I hundred percent agree with you, and I just think it, it it's it's a really interesting choice, obviously, because I don't you know if you were to ask anybody before these came out and before we knew these were going to be available or were even going to be a thing, right? I don't know if if people would have immediately thought, you know, what I'd really like to see is a three part arc for Ahsoka paired with a three part arc for Dooku. You know, like that, mm-hmm. that's probably just not anybody's mind, but obviously Dave Filoni knows best. He is the master and therefore we shall bow the knee. Well, I, I'm also going to throw a, a very, in my opinion, huge compliment to the crew on this. And I, I'm, I know that we'll talk about the, the artistry that went into this and just seeing where the animation has gone. I, we, we're mm-hmm. doing a commentary on the Bad Batch over on Aggressive Negotiations. So we're rewatching season one leading into season two. And it's just stunning to see where the animation has gone from the very earliest yeah. days of the Clone yeah. Wars to now, how mature it is. We, we've heaped all of this praise on it. But this series in particular, I will flat out say it, this one feels of all of the Star Wars series that they've released. And we all know I love The Mandalorian. Every person on the planet loves The Mandalorian who has, who has a brain in their head and a heart in their chest. But of all of the stuff that's been released since the Clone Wars, this is the most evocative of the type of boundaries that Lucas liked to push. These are not hour-long episodes. These are not even half-hour episodes. These evoke for me that first crazy experiment done with Tartakovsky with the original Clone Wars animated series, where Lucas's original proposition was, I want to tell stories in one minute. And Tartakovsky said, that's insane. Give me three minutes. And Lucas said, fine. These 15-minute vignettes, this is snackable, but impactful, 
and incredibly deep and incredibly effective visual storytelling. I struggle to think of modern Star Wars that has been so perfectly constructed around the idea that I could turn off the sound and I can understand everything that's happening. I can even pick up the dialogue. I could write the dialogue just by watching it and say, okay, I think I know pretty much what people would be saying in the scene. And I think that's very much at the essence of why this is so magnificent and why so many people are warmly embracing it is it's evocative of that boundary pushing compact efficient storytelling that we all fell in love with to begin with and it's so interesting you say that because you know one of the criticisms that i've heard even from you know lifetime fans is that these are not long enough (laughs) that that they feel like that there's just they want more that they feel like that you're and you know i'm right there with you because one of the things that I do think that this series is, this is a series specifically, I would say, for fans. This is a reward yes. for a fan who has seen every single thing, right? This is for the fan who has seen all of the Clone Wars, has seen all of Rebels, has seen, you know, all of um, uh, the prequels. You know, you, you, you've been immersed in that, right? And this is your reward for that. And And to me... These are long enough because what they are doing is they are building on all of the building blocks that we already had, and they are filling in those those little tiny story gaps that just kind of help us fully flesh out, you know, who a character is and what what's going on in their mind at these specific points in their life, and how that informs the rest of them. And and, and I think specifically. You know, we see that, you know, with Dooku. And and so to me, these are long enough, but you do have to have watched everything. And that's not, I think, a criticism. I think this is, there is a point in every fandom where you are going to be making some things just for fans. And I don't think that's a bad thing here. Uh, and to me, it's ultimately rewarding because every every one of these stories in different ways pulled at my heartstrings because of the way it was making those larger connections with these character stories and now then resonating throughout the rest of the saga. You know, it's it's like each one of these episodes is is, you know, it's like that pebble in the lake and the ripples just flow out into the rest of their life. And and so I, to me, I didn't need these to be longer I, because it's the perfect economic storytelling. I, I have, I have something I'll throw out there that I know will, will tickle your fancy to, to hear the comparison, but yes, if you're a longtime fan, these are absolute treat. This is, this is the present you never expected to get, but when you got it, you suddenly realize this is what you always wanted. So it is the ultimate love letter to fans. I agree with you on that. However, I will say it is also essential viewing and something that I would use here and there. If somebody's just seen the movies, I might not show them the first episode of this series, but I would show them the Dooku arc because Dooku doesn't get a lot of screen time in the prequel trilogy. 
I think that these little stack, snackable bits act like Tolkien's appendices. And we know that Dave Filoni is a Tolkien fan. But this is like, do you need to know about the Council of Erebor to love The Hobbit? Nope. I didn't even read the appendices for Lord of the Rings for years. I, I, I don't think I've ever read all of them. Mm-hmm. But when you read it, you go, oh, okay, that's interesting. That does explain something. It's not something I was going to die without having. But now that I have it, that adds, like you were saying, more shading to the story. Makes it very, very interesting. So I would view these as those sort of little appendices hits. I think it's also incredibly important. We do, in fact, live in a different entertainment landscape. And these shorter episodes are vital to conveying the little hits because what is the trap that every longtime fan of any franchise falls into tell me about the marvel movies well okay infinity stone blah 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 and you can go on and on and on and on but when you have these little bits you could say oh that's a question you had yeah yeah here's here's the moment where dooku turned oh yeah yeah here's his relationship with qui-gon here's this here's that here's why ahsoka was so incredible during order 66 here's our first introduction, you know, to to the Inquisitors and Ahsoka and does a Jedi need a lightsaber to win sort of thing. And it's um I, I just I, I think it's instead of all of these different streaming series that run away from the fact that the landscape has changed for entertainment expectations, this feels like a, a series that embraces it and says not everything needs to be an hour long show. You can tell this bit of story in 15 minutes. And the thing is I could watch the Dooku. I could watch this three episode arc bang and it functions as an episode. Yeah. But I can watch it in little bits. Well, and I think the thing is, is that these episodes themselves don't need to be longer because they are telling the story they need to tell. Mm-hmm. And we're meant to tell, you know, because they then connect with the larger story itself, right? And they're not meant to tell the larger story. They're meant to tell right. the specific moments that are pinch points for these characters' lives. Allow me to also throw this out there, that there, I think, is a lesson with this for how they should be approaching. Granted, we got the Mandalorian and everything, but there are plenty of opportunities to start filling in more of those gaps between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy and do some world building with little 15-minute episodes. Yeah. Fans would eat that up. Okay. The Mandalorian's doing some heavy lifting with that right now. But a supplementary thing showing somebody out on the fringes or somebody that's on the run or somebody that's helping build this or the first signs of the First Order or something like that those little bits help so that you don't have to hijack an episode of the book of Boba Fett to tell what's going on with Luke. You could have a little 15 right. minute thing. You see over there. Oh, that's what's going on over there. Well, and, and it, you know, obviously it makes me think the fact that, you know, if you want to do tales of the Jedi season two, there's definitely places where you can tell uh, other oh. stories uh, and that you're just right for that. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, John, was, do, you know, these are presented in chronological order, which is a really interesting choice. And the fact that if you were actually to watch Star Wars from start to finish, the first thing you would actually watch is Ahsoka's birth. Yep. 
And um, so did it work for you to have the stories presented this way? Um, and um, or would you rather have them been in like the Ahsoka journey batch and then, you know, Dooku's journey batch? What Ahsoka's birth? What, what age was Ahsoka when she became Anakin's apprentice? I forget. So we know that Togrutans themselves age differently than humans because they live longer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I believe, you know, Ahsoka was supposed to be somewhere around 14, but that's would be in like, I think human reckoning. So I think she's actually older than that. My guess is that, you know, by her people's standards, she's more like, you know, 25. So this, you know, it puts this, this story uh, of her birth, I think what, 15 years, I think before the, uh, the, the happenings of the Phantom Menace. Um, okay. And so, um, that's, that's just me doing, um, some, some rough estimations and, and just kind of guesswork because, you know, again, like, you know, Yoda's people. Oh, I'm not rejecting, I'm not, I, I, I am not rejecting what you're saying at all. I'm actually just trying to make sure that the math is working out in my own head. Yeah. So you know, because yeah, and I I had to do the same yeah. thing as well because I was like eh, I don't know exactly and and then yeah well and there's also look uh, this could rankle some but something like this is how you expand it outward because everybody says it needs to be more than the Skywalker saga and what you're laying out there and 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 the fact that yes okay you you could therefore start this whole thing off with Ahsoka's birth. Which mm -hmm. means, oh, okay, that means that uh, we've now very, very quietly subverted this so that now I have this, this other track I can follow where the story of Ahsoka becomes a larger, a larger story within the Star Wars universe so that it doesn't remove or deconstruct the Skywalker saga and it can still super duper important, but it also at the same time elevates and changes our perspective on what the even larger story is. Right. And Ahsoka becomes the champion of that larger arc. Well, and, and becomes the connection point for every point of star Wars history, you know, for the most it, part, it, which is trippy, which is extremely yeah. trippy because Ahsoka now has always been there. And will always be there and has always belonged and is it's absolutely mind numbing. Well, you know, like you just said, she touches every single era and it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy because everybody was always looking for it. it, it it's, it's like the whole thing where I'm not trying to be too reductive where people said, oh, well, where's a, a female Star Wars hero? They never. They didn't look for what was right in front of their face this whole time. So what we're saying is that Ahsoka is the unified theory. Yes. Okay. She's the okay. unified the unified theory of Star Wars. <laughs> yes. So let's let's dive into Ahsoka's journey and we're gonna cover these within the specific arcs for the characters so we can kind of talk through them specifically like that. And and starting with life and death. Um, you know, I was I was actually struck by 
the fact that you know when this character f- was first brought to screen the reception for her was less than celebrated and now we're at the point where Dave can tell a story about Ahsoka's birth and first year of life and people are riveted and you know baby Yoda's having to check the door to see who's cuter now yeah I uh <laughs> well um yes and I, I think that like so many other things in in Star Wars there's a very it, there's a very um cross-cultural sort of sensibility reflected in Ahsoka's story it, it feels very much like it's very evocative of a Kurosawa type story um, one of his mm-hmm. samurai stories yes. and, and and it's down to the, the architecture of the town to the way that the townsfolk interact to the way that you have this elder to the way that you have this mythical mystical event having to do with nature and Ahsoka's connection to it you know nature being the force in this circumstance but the the you know the magical changeling child that can commune with the larger world so effortlessly. Um, and it, on top of that, it becomes a very important story about how powerful Ahsoka truly is, how innately powerful she is. I, I hate saying the word powerful, but like how innately connected she is to the force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I think what, what's really interesting uh, because the, the big narrative thread, I think, here is the fact that you know her mother from the very beginning is teaching her about the circle of life basically mm-hmm. helping her understand life and death and the beauty of both and, and the way that it is all interconnected and to have respect for all life even when you know as they do they hunt and take life and that life feeds many others and you know, it's it's very, like you were saying, just kind of evocative of the idea of, um, you know, what what we see in, like, The Lion King. Um, and, but I, I think that's something that's so interesting, of course, is the way that that connects then with, with the very last chapter, with Resolve. It, it really reminded me of, you know, the Kirk quote from Star Trek II, where he says, you know, how we face death is at least as important as how we face life. And that's almost what it seems like, you know, uh, Ahsoka's mother is teaching her from the very beginning, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you, we must face both and we must think about both and we must recognize, you know, almost the fragility of, of all of this and, and respect it. And I think that's, that's something that's, that's really important. Um, but I also liked what you just said about the, the way in which, we see her face off against the the mythical, you know, evil or whatever. And, you know, it it brings to mind that from the very beginning, Ahsoka faces the darkness and the light conquers it, you know? And that's when at at the end of that episode, they, you know, her parents are like, how? And the elder of the village, you know, says that she's Jedi. Mm-hmm. And it brings to mind too that this is this is the key is that Ahsoka then 
even when she is not quote unquote a Jedi or even would not call herself a Jedi anymore, what she is living is Jedi principles, like what Jedi mm. are meant to be. Uh, even before the, she's cognizant of what that is, Ahsoka is Jedi. The Elder is giving us a hint as to who she believes the Jedi to be. Who, what the, yes, the, the perception yes. of, of what a Jedi is at this point in time, before the Jedi image has been tarnished both fairly and unfairly by the Dark Times. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think also quite interesting, too, you know, we saw uh, baby Grogu, you know, uh, put to sleep the the rancor <laughs> and uh here you know we see baby ahsoka tame the 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 wild whatever they want to call that thing it's a liger tiger thing whatever uh saber, let's just call it a saber tooth oh. tiger cat something yeah uh, something like that and it and i just you know again i, I think you you and were pointing to her innate power and the force and you know we always knew that Yoda's species was very strong in the Force. I mean, we see that in the Dooku arc with with Yaddle, and we saw it with Yoda, and we've seen it with Grogu, and, and what he's able to do even at his age. And so, I think it gives us a, a an insight into you know who this character is, and you know who she's going to be, which is also I think what makes Practice Perfect really interesting because you mentioned earlier. This whole episode really is about helping explain how Ahsoka could survive when others couldn't in Order 66. Well, because she was trained by the one other Jedi that would have been able to survive as well, had he not been on the wrong side of that exchange. I I think that what's beautiful about it, too, is every interaction with Ahsoka like this, with Anakin makes him more tragic. And that's the trick. And it's something that made me, over time, somewhat tune out of Expanded Universe stuff, both, you know, regardless of the era, is this takes a small moment with Anakin, and instead of treating it as a perfunctory moment of, oh, look, we get to see Anakin with Ahsoka, this little episode adds so much depth to their relationship that we didn't think we could get any more facets to, but additionally further makes Anakin's tragedy a tragedy because you see that he wasn't sitting there. I mean, he, unlike Dooku, he's not plotting these terrible things or taking part in anything like that. He is actually in this moment, a great teacher. Because he's not letting Ahsoka off the hook, and he's simply demanding of her the same thing he demands of himself. And that's always, if you look at those those great training arcs out there, whether it's Rocky, whether it's uh, you know a samurai film, whether it's a you know the 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 thirty nine chambers of Shaolin or something like that. There's always the sense of I see greatness. And I'm not going to take it easy on greatness. Why should I take it easy on you? Because I know you can survive and you can endure. The best teacher says, I'm challenging you not because I want you to fail. I'm challenging you because I know you can succeed. So Anakin doesn't say at some point, oh, well, this is too hard. But, you know, think about it. He sits there and he says, again, 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 until Ahsoka gets to that point where she realizes, oh, this isn't just to torture me. 
this could potentially save my life. Mm -hmm. And it literally does. Well, and Anakin trains people to survive because he knows he's not always going to be there to help mm -hmm. them survive. I mean, we saw it in the Onderon arc. He begins the rebellion and here he trains a person to be able to defy the emperor's order that he helps enforce. And, you know, it, it what's beautiful, and like you said, I, I think you nailed it in the sense that this makes Anakin so much more tragic because you can see how much Anakin actually truly does care, and it's his caring that actually helps people become the best version of themselves. You know, this really does make Ahsoka a better version of herself. Um, and, you know, he, he pushes her, and it's not comfortable, and it's not easy, but he pushes her to be the best version of herself that she can be. And somebody she didn't even know she could be. And when you couple that with, you know, who we saw her to be from the moment she was born, which she's innately powerful, it's him honing her skill. You know, even if you have talent, you still have to practice. You know, I mean, every great athlete will tell you that. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter how talented you are. You still have to get out there and practice day in and day out. And this is what Anakin pushes her to do. And I think that's so interesting because, you know, think about this. Anakin came to the Order and thought he was going to be trained by Qui-Gon Jinn. And then Qui-Gon Jinn died. So he's well aware of the fact that Jedi are not invincible. Mm -hmm. Even though he thought Great so point. in episode one, you know, no one can kill a Jedi. And so therefore, he knows even with his own Padawan, he might not always be there to make sure she's alive. And he even says that. And I think, you know, this rightly just picks up so well with, you know, what we we see from his life and, and, and his psychology to why he would be doing this in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it is one of the beautiful things as well that I think that it speaks to the fact that we've seen Ahsoka's beginning moment before this now. And like we're saying, she's innately powerful, but she's innately connected to the force. And it puts it right there in front of you. There's nobody else who could really train her and get her to her full potential except for Anakin Skywalker. He's the only one that's going to get her there because of who he is. Not just his personality, but also the fact that he's innately connected and powerful the same way. He's going to be able to plug into and understand her connection in a way no other Jedi will, even Master Yoda. This doesn't take anything away from Yoda, but I mean, Yoda's 900, well, almost 900 by this point. Anakin is a little bit closer there and a little bit more, lack of a better term, qualified to be training Ahsoka this way. And uh, Obi-Wan, I, I know this will make your, this will upset you. Obi-Wan couldn't get Ahsoka to this point. Not because Obi-Wan's a bad teacher or a bad person or a bad Jedi or a bad Jedi master or anything like that but because it takes Anakin to get her to this point. Anakin's the only one who's going to be able to do it. 
No, I mean, I, I think you're right. And, and part of that is his uh, attachment to her, you know? And, and mm-hmm. so that's, that's where I think, you know, what's so interesting about this is that I think it does show that being attached to someone does not necessarily mean it's a bad thing if rightly focused and you know here are these moments where it is i think rightly focused you know you you see that training room and everybody's impressed you know caleb dune is there with uh double balaba and he's pretty impressive what you know soka can do and so is everybody else but anakin knows that droids are one thing but that you know they're they're non-thinking stupid machines right and so therefore it's easy to predict as a jedi what that binary machine is going to do whereas a human being or a being is just completely different you know can be so erratic that it's much harder to to you know to read and make those decisions with and so because they do unexpected things and and therefore he trains her against the very best which then plays into the next episode where she's able to defeat an Inquisitor without her saber. Right. She's able to, to win that. And that is, that is, I think, also a beautiful nod to where the Bad Batch will later find themselves of being those people who are trying to hide but still find themselves in situations where yes. they're going to help. Yeah. Because inevitably a good person is always going to be looking for whatever way, whether it's very visible or whether it's invisible or what have you, that good person can't help themselves from trying to do good. And I think that's actually something that I like because it, it mirrors and reinforces the bad batches arc as we start heading into season two, but also into where Ahsoka's going to go in Rebels. She can't stay away. She has to take part in this. She yeah. has to do something. And I think that's that's really important because I think it does tie in to what Anakin puts her through in the fifth episode. And yeah. that plays right into the sixth. And I also, you know, we, we've talked about the artistry with it and everything, but I think it also speaks to I have to I have to stop every so often and say, you know, that the art direction, the the, the framing, the editing, all of those things are, are brilliant. But what these animated shows will never get enough credit for, I think, is their design sensibilities, because that Inquisitor was legitimately terrifying to look at. That was a that was an unsettling creature to behold, and. I think it's very telling as well because you go from episode, the fifth episode to the sixth episode and you see this representative horror of what the world has become for somebody like Ahsoka. That Inquisitor embodies the evil that is everywhere now. And she's and in the very previous episode, we've seen her surrounded by good support and love. And it's a very important, I think, juxt- juxtaposition. Well, and I think that too in in the episode it plays out is obviously there are people who are are willing to support her you know she goes to Padme's funeral she runs into Bail Organa and you know Bell hands her the communications device and lets her know that if she ever needs anything he's there for her and that 
they need her, you know, uh, and she's tired of fighting. You know, she's she's worn out. She's she's like a bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, she's lost everything again. And um, she now lives in fear. You know, like you, you she, who who who's looking out for her? She knows she has to always be looking over her shoulder. She has to have her head on a swivel. Uh, and yet, you know, I love that Bale reminds her that, you know, there's a duty and an obligation to uphold when you can. And so Ahsoka, like you were saying, she can't help being Jedi. Even when her life might be in danger because somebody might see her do something. When somebody's in need of saving, she's not going to just sit there and do nothing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, I, I think it's so beautiful. And I, I, like you said, too, I mean, this is a perfect picture of, you know, <laughs> immediately how the Empire is, quote unquote, caring for people, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's just such a terrible thing. This This kid, you know, thinks he's going to get rewarded and the reward is death um and so i i just i really really love that the way that this is tying into the bad batch the way this is tying into andor you know the crush of the empire um and so all of this in this episode i thought was really beautiful now there is one uh novel-sized elephant in the room and that's the Ahsoka novel and how this kind of goes against that. Does that bother you in any way or does okay, it, it but even before, register Before we for jump you? over the Duke stuff, yeah. How long have you known me? Oh, pretty long time now. Yeah. Pretty long time. Yeah. Well, what do you think the answer is to that question? Well, I think the answer is going to be no. That's correct. <laughs> okay. I didn't even think of the Ahsoka novel while I was watching this. I Honestly. Star Wars is primarily a visual medium. This series is a a stunning example and reminder of that. As much as I might enjoy a book here or there, if somebody with a reasonable amount of authority puts together something like this and walks forward and says, this happened instead, my brain will go through and completely scrub that book from my memory so that when you ask me a question, do you care that it kind of contradicts the Ahsoka novel? It takes me a second to go, there was an Ahsoka. Oh, right. Yeah. No, don't care. Right. It's no problem at all. Well, and Dave had already changed the Ahsoka novel anyway, in the sense mm-hmm. that he did that with the last season of the Clone Wars. So I, I don't I don't really have an issue with it. I, I'm with you. To me, Star Wars has always been what's on screen is canon first. Everything else can be overwritten, no matter what you say about anything else. And so... To me, this being the story about how Ahsoka gets back in the fight, how she wins a lightsaber back so that she will be able to create the, the you know, the, the twin white blades. Um, this is the story for me. And, you know, I know what novels are. They are only supplements of what we see on screen. And so it never bothers me that somebody might want to override that. As much as I love the book Dark Disciple... If Dave wants to come back and do Tales of the Jedi Season 2, and it's just an eight-episode arc about, you know, uh, Quinlan Voss and Asajj Ventress, 
and it changes what happened in the novel, okay. I'm I'm all for that, you know, because yep. it would be what's on screen. It's this visual medium. And so that's not saying that I don't love these novels, but I also don't I I don't put them at the same level ever as as you know what we see on screen. I will always turn that dial back. I'll I'll even leapfrog back past the Return of the Jedi novelization, which has its own set of things, you know, that 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 contradicts quote unquote the film that came out and then et cetera, et cetera. But I'll go all the way back to the Empire Strikes Back novelization and say Yoda was four feet tall and blue in the Empire Strikes Back novelization. And I'll even roll it even further back from that. And the Star Wars novelization, there are differences. And it's just, it's different media, but Star Wars is a film. And the Star Wars films are films first. And everything else is an adaptation of those works. And the the it, film will always win. Whether it's a streaming series or whether it's anything else. You could have, um, I mean... Let's go to the episode one uh, story sticker book that had uh, Bail Organa in it. And I, I hate to break it to you. And I wasn't played by Jimmy Smits. You know, like it, mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where, um, yeah, uh, it'll never it'll never bother me ever, ever bother me. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, so. I definitely think it is time that we do jump to Dooku's journey because there is so much to talk about there. Uh, and in many ways, I think, you know, um, the I would say the the real meat of the story for, for this series came with Dooku's journey in the first episode, Justice, which I think really, which does such an incredible job of driving home the idea that Dooku is seeing the corruption of the Senate, is seeing the corruption of... The Republic is seeing the corruption even in the Jedi being so close to the Senate that it is beginning to bother him. And this is, it's almost like a boiling over point here. Um, and it, it, and I don't know if it's the first moment it's happened, but it seems to be one of the most pinnacle moments in his journey uh, towards making the decision that he's going to make. And I just... What this touches on with this corruption and how, you know, the senator is the longest standing senator, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, we learned that this senator has made it possible for them to continually be reelected through most likely election fraud. I was like, wow, this is getting really close to home here. Uh, You know, so like this is the way in which I think Star Wars does such a great job of connecting with wherever you are now but also reaching back and kind of like picking up all of these historical pieces for characters and 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 i just what this does for dooku's journey to be you know slapped in the face with this kind of corruption it's it it really does feel like this is his first big breaking point three things and and this is what's going to be tough is i know we've talked a lot about ahsoka but this Dooku stuff really was close to my heart in a lot of ways. I, 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 I blogged about this in the past. I've, I've talked about it forever. We've gone back and forth about it. You've heard me say this numerous times, but Dooku is always a character that I felt didn't get enough sympathy from the fans, that, it, that didn't get enough understanding. 
again, I know doesn't have as much screen time in in the prequel movies as you know would would, would elicit that. But even in the Clone Wars, he's basically just pure evil. There there are hints yeah. that there was something more to him, but you see a lot of evil. This is this really hits close to home because I think that it's just it's extremely relatable from the perspective of people who really believed in something and have suddenly found out that what they believed in was true, but the other people who were supposed to believe in it with them were liars. And it's that, that intense feeling of betrayal and anger. And I think that the things I'll call out, the three things I'll call out specifically in this episode, one, again, going to the production design. It's so brilliant that the coloration of Dooku is a little bit paler than Qui-Gon. And, and by the way, seeing Qui-Gon's very Liam Neeson-like mm. collarbones. Oh, yes. Very yes. beautiful touch. Um, the village looks very much like an old Hammer horror film. And to have yes, it does. the character yes, it does. that was played by Dracula show up in this village, I chuckled. I went, ah. Like, I got it right right off the bat. I thought it was beautiful. I'm not saying other people didn't. I'm just saying, like, that made me giggle the first time I saw it. Then, to have that moment of Dooku being stopped by Qui-Gon. And I think one of the most beautiful lines in all six episodes is when he says to Qui-Gon, you saved a lot of lives today. He's openly admitting to Qui-Gon, thanks. If it hadn't been for you, I would have kept going. Yeah, I would have killed everyone. It expands Qui-Gon. It makes Qui-Gon even more interesting than he already was. And then the third thing is that Dooku, even though he pulls back, thanks to Qui-Gon, he receives a lesson here, unintentionally, that the way to make the galaxy right is to force it to be right. Because he gets his ultimate goal at the end of this. He cows the senator, gets the senator's son to promise to make things better, and cures an ill because of his anger and because of his righteous um, fury that's going to lead to the death. Yeah. That's the lesson he's going to walk away from. Or walk away with from this. That this is how you make the galaxy right. You force it to be right. Which is the exact same lesson that Anakin's going to learn. And the reason Anakin falls too. It's funny you say, when you were saying that, I thought of, you know, angry young man from Billy Joel. Yep. Yeah, And that's exactly what Dooku is. He's an angry middle-aged man, I guess. Uh, you know, so. Um, <laughs> hey, all the more reason for me to relate to him. But, you know, a, a question that became in the episode, and as you were speaking, I was really thinking about how this this is the big question of the episode, which is, you know, how did the Jedi enforce justice when they're so beholden to the Senate? And Dooku comes up against that question here, you know, because the senator says, arrest these people. You work for me. And he has to remind him, saying, you know... No, we work for the people of this this galaxy. 
And that's the differentiation that he sees. I think it's the it's clearly the lesson that I one of the lessons I think Qui-Gon takes with him, right? Which he sees himself more as a person, you know, that is in tune with, you know, trying to be there for the people of the galaxy, although even he kind of falls into the trap, you know, when it's like, why why isn't he, you know, helping uh, end slavery on Tatooine? Why is, shouldn't that be something that they should be doing? It, except that they're not there because the Senate doesn't care. And so, therefore, neither do the Jedi. Um, and so it, it really creates this really big question there. Um, and one of the things I was really interested why did to me did the senatorial garb and his guards it really had this like French inspiration to me, which reminded oh, yeah. me the of gendarme. the gendarme. Yeah, yeah, of 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 that. You know, when you think of almost like the French Revolution and the aristocrats taking over and and all those type of things, and or you even think of the monarchy beforehand. You know, not caring about people and let them eat cake, yada yada, and. And, and again, that, that it's so evocative, like you were talking about, and you've mentioned a few times just the design work here. And I think these little touches just kind of help key you in, you know, and, and that's one of the beauties of Star Wars, which is, is also pulling from real history to create things. And mm-hmm. so if you know anything about history, you start to pick up those little pieces and how they inform the story of Dooku and what he's facing here. Um, and I just I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I think, oh my gosh, this, this, this first episode, I loved, I loved how bleak it was, the town, like Mm -hmm. the impact of this senator's reign over this planet and working as their senator in the Republic has led to this. And that mood, I think then permeates the rest of these episodes for Dooku. And I think it's that bleakness where he, like you, we talked about earlier, he's the idealist and therefore the ideal that he was striving for with this thing that he believed in, he no longer believes anymore. And here was the first major crack that showed him that it wasn't going to work. Which, you know, leads me to the beautiful episode of Choices. And first, I, w- I wanted to ask you this question, because I've heard this, this uh, criticism of this episode, uh, and I wanted to get your take on it, is that it's basically a redo of the episode we just got. Do you agree with that, or do you feel like this adds to the journey for Dooku? Other people say it as a joke, and I say it with love in my heart. And truth, it's like poetry, it rhymes. And I think that it has a very important place because you see when it's not Qui-Gon with him, how the situation plays out differently. How things are, if anything, I think that it's, it's a brilliant episode because it expands and further condemns Mace Windu for being, at times something of a jackass and an authoritarian in his own right. That's putting it mildly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think, I think it's very important because you see Dooku when he's in this horrible situation in that village 
and a person of true compassion who's who's motivated by true ideals and true uh you know true faith is there with Dooku there's no butting up of heads there's a a gentle hey remember who we are and Dooku responds to that whereas Windu is pushing Dooku exactly the same way he pushes Anakin no I'm right do what I say this is the way we do things this is what's right and how does somebody like Dooku react to that? Same way somebody like Anakin reacts to that. Hey, jackass, what are, what are you talking about? And I think it's just very important. Again, it's that that poetry to it. And uh, I think that it is it is an episode that winds up not getting the Correct amount of affection is the only way I can say it because it's sandwiched between two episodes that are so incredible. And, you know, and we're about to jump to the one that really was a major, just like, you know, blow to the heart sort of thing and humanizing moment for Dooku. But I think what's super important about this episode is showing that Dooku and Windu are basically equals. Dooku might fancy himself a bit bit better than Windu in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, Windu gets elevated to the council and Dooku has that moment of saying, did you always know that, that this was what was on the line? And Windu maybe betraying that his own selfish motivations got in the way of how he handled things. And in a sense, he's got to be somewhat aware that Dooku got kind of screwed over here. And Look, people can feel free to disagree with that all that you want. Dooku maybe didn't belong on the council, but again, we have an echo of Anakin. Instead of instead of doing what Qui-Gon does, which is show compassion and love and support and reminding of the, the, the true tenets of the faith, if you will, Windu is such an incredibly rigid a-hole that he pushes away the one person that he should be pulling close and nurturing instead of excluding and, and, and building a wall around this person, making them feel isolated and unloved by their family, basically. Dooku feels incredibly betrayed at the end of this episode. And so, yeah, I think it's an important and a good episode. I think you mentioned some of the things that I, I really feel about this episode and why it actually is quite different than the first episode. Yes, there's the layer of corruption, but the layer of corruption here is 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 not necessarily about another senator. Uh, the layer of corruption here is about the corruption of the Jedi. Dooku is frustrated with, with Mace Windu, who cares more about protocol than he does people. And then at the end to have him ascended to the council is I think one of the things that breaks his faith with the council itself. You know, I I think the the problem here is that, you know, one of the senator one of the guards that 
uh, they capture at the end, the only one that ends up being alive, says that, you know, that the Jedi only care about law and order for those in power, for those that are rich, you know. Um, and I, I think that this is is so beautiful in reinforcing that the Jedi are too wrapped up in politics. Mace Windu says they're not, but they, they legitimately are. And mainly because somebody like Mace Windu is not willing to think outside the box. He says, oh, we have our council. We're not driven by, you know, our egos or our, you know, politics. But that's a bunch of BS, you know? I mean, uh, I, you know, Mace is clearly driven by his politics and by his ego. And the problem is you have two big egos butting heads in this episode. And... I think the interesting thing is that, and we'll talk about it in a second, but that, that last episode actually reinforces that maybe Qui-Gon and Dooku really were needed on the council to add voice and imagination to something that had lacked imagination for way too long. Because too yes. many people who were just rule followers ended up on the council. And so, you know, I, I think... That's what makes this episode so important. Plus, this episode takes place on Raxus Sedungus, which is the Confederacy's Senate home. This is where you'll have that episode with Mina von Terry and Padme when they visit the the Confederacy's Senate building. Uh, and, you know, so this is a planet to which Dooku is going to utilize their un rest with what they see happening in the republic and he and my guess is is this may be one of the first planets he's able to pull the to the side of the confederacy of separatists so this episode is incredibly important and in 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 many ways it's because yes it is reinforcing the messages of the first episode but it's also compounding those by showing us that the Jedi are just as corrupt at this point as the Republic itself. And it's because they are too in bed with the Senate and they can't see it. And the only person who can see it is somebody that nobody wants to listen to. Yes. And, the, and it shows how the council makes its same mistakes over and over again. It. It pushes Dooku away when it should pull him close and listen to him. It pushes Qui-Gon away because he doesn't listen. And you can't help but have the feeling that Qui-Gon's relationship to Dooku also keeps him off the council. And then you have Anakin, who by that point, Sidious has figured out, oh, oh, okay, I just have to make him mistrust the council and then make the council mistrust him by simply being friendly with him. And like it suddenly makes everything in episode three, even more brilliant on the part of Sidious because he's paid attention and he understands the trap that the Jedi will walk right into, not just in terms of running the war or anything like that, but he says to Anakin in episode three, they need you Anakin more than they know. He's learned that by this point, they needed Dooku and they didn't pay attention they needed Qui-Gon, and they didn't pay attention. Anakin drops in Sidious's lap, and he's like, oh, yes. Jackpot. 
I got this one. I know how to play this hand. I know exactly how to play the hand that I've been dealt. And um, I think that in terms of playing the hand that he's dealt, I think what's also additionally interesting is you know I'm dying to get to the episode, the next episode in the in the arc here. Let's, yeah, let's talk go, about the Sith Lord. Let's go right into it. And we'll, you know, we'll double back through and everything, but jumping right through to that whole Sidious knowing how to play things. I think that I got to ask you when Dooku goes there and he says, he's saying, oh, what have I, you know, what have I lost? Qui-Gon is dead now. And Sidious says, I lost an apprentice too. There, there are these little hints when Sidious goes onto the, the lava shore and sees Anakin and touches him somewhat tenderly on the forehead. And that line there about losing an apprentice too. There's almost the sense that there is this little spark of caring, non-selfish motivation in Sidious. This little tiny spark of humanity that just, it's a teeny tiny little ember that just won't go away. Do you think he was expressing any affection for Maul or is, am I reading too much into that moment? I think that is a really interesting read. It's not one that I took it as. I, I took it as, as him pretending to have that to make mm. Dooku feel bad. To be like, you're not the only one who lost an apprentice. I lost an apprentice too. You know, he he's such a manipulator. And so he's psychologically mm. manipulating Dooku in this moment to make him think that he's in the same position that he is. Right? I don't think yeah. he cares. Because what I got from this episode is that Maul was always expendable. Oh, because I, he had yeah. already been... And I'm not saying that you're not saying that, but... yeah, yeah. But the fact that, you know, he had already been working with Dooku and I think in many ways for Sidious, it's actually better for Maul to die because the politician that Dooku is, is going to be much more needed now than the blunt force trauma character no of Maul. Que no question, no question. And I wasn't trying to overstate. I was saying it literally is a tiny little ember. Oh, sure in, sure. in the sense that it's like, oh, I like that kid. He was, he was pretty good. Ah, okay. Oh, well. Um, so it's not like he felt love for Maul or selfless right. identity, but he'd, been, he'd spent enough time with it. He'd raised Maul from a child, you know, well, well not a child necessarily, but, you know, he, he'd been with Maul long enough and honed him to where he was that there's a bit of regret of, ah, I spent a lot of time with that guy and he... He was pretty good at what he did. Oh, yeah. well. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I kind of knew he was going to die, but yeah, it's a shame. Why? Maybe I'll bring him back as a half-robot spider. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> um, the true star of this episode is Yaddle. Who would have thought that in 15 minutes Yaddle would go from sort of obscure joke background character to I would like an action figure, please. Maybe a book about Yaddle, something like that. That would be pretty awesome. I mean, one of my favorite characters now of all time, in, in all honesty, I just, uh, I, that's not overstating it. And I had no idea 
That was Bryce Dallas Howard oh, the first time I heard so it. She was so good. She was so Who, good. Whoever directed the voice acting, like, was in the booth there, man, because she did a fantastic job, but also something I got to call out, Corey Burton as Dooku. Mm-hmm. Yes. Pay attention to the way he says the word peace. Yes. It's so beautiful. Every time he says peace, that in peace is just extended ever so slightly to make it a menacing word. Beautiful vocal work, especially here yeah. in this episode. Well, and, and then it makes it so impactful when she says, you know, so many have suffered for what you call peace. And it mm-hmm. just, it breaks your heart because the, the beauty of this episode is the way that, you know, you see, because this takes place in and between and at the end of uh, The Phantom Menace. And you see that Yaddle and Qui-Gon are close. Which is really a cool thing because, you know, what she later confesses to Dooku saying that after his death, she has stepped down from the council because she's Mm -hmm. realized he's been right about a lot of things. And... It's it's such an interesting thing because you see this triumvirate of characters who, if they had worked together, they could have changed the whole course of the Star Wars history. And yet, by that point, Dooku has already been pulled aside by Sidious and already is working on their machinations to create the greater good that they're going to be fighting for, the quote-unquote greater good. And the remaking of the galaxy. And it's it's just so incredibly sad because it, you know, and it's so important because the, the prequels are meant to be sad, right? It is about this fall of a republic. It's about the way this, what was what this shining example, uh, the Jedi and the Republic for over a thousand generations ha- devolves into something that implodes and i i just i love it because you also see played here that dooku realizing that he is in part responsible for qui-gon's death in many ways is the very thing that is the complete breaking point for him to choose evil in the same way Anakin killing Mace Windu is the thing that breaks him. He's made the choice he can't go back from. And the beauty here is that even in that moment, Yaddle still offers him redemption. She says, there's still a way for you to come back. I don't care what he said. I don't care what you've done. Just come back. We can defeat this Sith Lord and then we can figure it out together. Mm-hmm. And it's just so heartbreaking. And it, and again, even in these 15 minutes of this episode, th- the emotion and characterization that Bryce Dallas Howard puts into this character makes her a fully rounded character. It's incredible work. And every mm-hmm. single part of this episode is just absolutely gorgeous because what I love too, and I know I'm just kind of rambling at this point because it's so great, 
But when she pushes the door up, yeah, she lets the light in on Dooku one more time. Yep, to give him one more chance. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, I love you see Sidious like you know afraid of the light, you know, like a rat, yep. you know, scurrying away almost. And Dooku again makes the decision to double down on his choice, and again. It's the same thing that happens with Anakin. He decides to fight Obi-Wan to the death. He mm-hmm. doubles down on his decision. And mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of brings back the line, once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. And this episode is just so absolutely stunning in every way, shape, and form. It, it's... It rivals the Mortis episode. It rivals the Yoda arc episodes with beauty and just the amount of emotion that comes in there. I mean, I found myself in tears at the end of this episode just because of what had happened and what we had just seen, you know. And to finally give us the fall of Dooku in this way, so well done. So well this- done. This was the one. This was the one where that I I went back and watched again almost immediately uh, that that night, and because I watched one a day, and but this was the one where I doubled back. I believe I, I want you to to head check me on this, but I swear I heard some echoes of Blade Runner and or Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Oh yes. In, oh yes. In the yep. the beginning the of score. this. Yeah. There, there were definitely. Definitely echoes there, um, but this 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 is the one of all six. As much as I loved all six of them, this is the one that I point to as it, if I'm if I'm hinging an award nomination or an award that I'm giving. This is the episode where I say this is the one where everything is just perfect not to diminish anything else i loved every bit of this from beginning to finish but this one is so gorgeous and additionally the this episode then followed by um uh you know soka learning how to defend herself and seeing how it pays off for order 66 that whole thing four and five together are such an incredible pivot point because it literally is the like the, the it, it's it's like two gut punches in a row of you realize how important both of these moments are for two different reasons and this is specifically where these two arcs cross over why these two arcs are so important to tell at the same time and you see that counterbalance of the light starting to go out and then the the spark reigniting with what Anakin is laying in place there so that it so that it can continue the, the fire can continue burning until Luke shows up and the galaxy can try to start healing as a whole again. The fire rises. Yeah, um, basically. Y- you know, I was just thinking, too. One of the things that this also does is answer a question that nobody knew they needed answered, which is what happened to Yaddle. But not Mm -hmm. only what happened to her, but we see that with the death of Qui-Gon Jinn and with the death of Yaddle, 
two beings who could have made an incredible difference in the course and the trajectory of the Jedi Council are gone. Mm -hmm. And in that, evil is able to prevail much easier than if they had survived. And it just goes to show these two voices being snuffed out at the beginning make Sidious's job so much easier. Yes, and you realize you realize to speak to Sidious's machinations can't be any accident that you know he threw Maul at Qui Gon, knowing full well apparently that Maul was going to bite it in the process, but or could bite it in the process because he's going you know all in on Dooku, but he knows he's got to get rid of Qui Gon and Yaddle, and suddenly Sidious seems even more diabolically brilliant. Because he's executed a gambit where he knows Dooku wouldn't be able to pull his saber against Qui-Gon. Yeah. Oh, no. And so, in a very large sense, it's like separating Obi-Wan and Anakin in Episode 3 so that Obi-Wan is not there to talk Anakin back off the brink. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree with you because I was just thinking about how... Uh, you know, it, we get that little bit where Qui-Gon and Dooku have a conversation and Dooku mentions how he won't be there and Qui-Gon says, don't worry, you know, Obi-Wan is there now and he, he more than is capable. Talks about always singing Obi-Wan's praises and of course that has a nice connection with episode two. But we also see that, you know, Obi-Wan was the one who was able to take out Maul in the end. And he's mm-hmm. the one who, you know, uh, could defeat Anakin. And, um, you know, so it's just all these little connection points. And I think all these little rhyming motifs, you know, George Lucas always talked about this idea of, of Star Wars rhyming. And I think that's the beauty of the way that these six stories ended up rhyming with themselves and then with the larger saga in general. And so we could probably spend another hour, John, I think, talking about uh, this series. But I do have to ask you one question before we get to our ratings. We kind of hinted or, or teased a little about the, the idea of a season two. Would you want more Tales of the Jedi? Yes. I'm ready to demand more tales of the Jedi. I, or I, yes, I, that, that's a no brainer. Like, but on the one condition that it's allowed to be the labor of love that this was, I don't want, this should be a once in a while, every so often we get the itch to do this and we have a couple of important Mm -hmm. stories to tell, but it's not really in the context of another series. The, yes. the Dooku thing doesn't fit in Bad Batch or Andor or anything else that they have going on right now. Right. So, Tales of the Jedi? Okay, yeah, you know what? This is where we tell these these little stories that don't fit somewhere else. We don't have to hijack somebody yes. else's show to tell them. Yes, they've. I think they've given themselves a perfect template for how to tell these little important stories uh, going forward. Yeah. Uh, no, I totally agree with you, Ed, and I 100% want more. Uh, Tales of the Jedi. It's it's just so wonderfully crafted. I think you said it earlier. It truly is a love letter to fans. 
And so I don't know if I need to ask this question, but we do here on the 602 Club. John, what would you rate Tales of the Jedi? Five, without hesitation. This is, this is essential Star Wars. This needs to exist. This is the one thing that's going to get under my skin about this is probably the same thing that's going to remain under my skin about Bad Batch, which is uh, I would like to own these, please, on disc yes. so that I, I can watch them in full 4K without having uh, you yes. know, compression yes. bit rates uh, screwing yes. me over with the picture quality. I don't care how much you promise that picture quality is perfect, Disney+. Plus. I know that you're lying to me. I know my ISP is lying to me. I would like these discs. Because I want them in the, I want, I want the full frame rate. I want the full everything. I want everything to release them. I want the HDR. I want everything. I want everything. I, I don't, without any crummy compression or anything like that, I want them. And how about you, Matt? I mean, it's a five. It's just clearly a five. And, um, and, and it's not just because you know, I'm a fan or anything like that. You know, if anybody has listened to John and I long enough, you know, we love Star Wars, but we are not afraid uh, to say when something doesn't live up to our expectations and and then give those reasons why we feel that's not the case. I, I think that these are incredibly beautiful, lovingly crafted stories by people who truly care about Star Wars and understand Star Wars on a level that it's hard for even myself to understand it. But I can appreciate the intense amount of labor of love beauty that's been poured into every single frame. And you can tell that every single frame has been intensely scrutinized to make it perfect. In the same way that Lucas would do the same thing, especially when he could do that in the prequels where he he just wanted it to be as perfect as he could make it at the time. And so this is clearly five stars. I highly recommend it. Like you, John, please let us own this on a 4K disc um, because it would be phenomenal. Um, and I think it would be just beyond brilliant to be able to see this in its full, unadulterated beauty. And so let us have that. But John, uh, if people wanted to, you know, possibly catch up with you and see what else you've got going on out there these days, where would they find you? Look for Kessel Junkie in your social media network of choice. Uh, And you can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting House Lights, where we look at the works of directors in different combinations and series and eras and decades. It's a lot of fun. Co-host that with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser. And of course, you can find me also on the Nerd Party, co-hosting a Star Wars-focused show called Aggressive Negotiations with you, Matthew Rushing. Well, and John, when I am not doing that, of course, you can find me all over the place on social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero. Uh, you can also find me here on the network uh, outside the 602 Club doing literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. And then when I wasn't doing aggressive negotiations with you, John, over on the Nerd Party Network, you could find me on a completed show with Dre Kaufman where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time, and that was called Owl Post. 
But thank you so much for joining us. And may the Force be with you. 